Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. And let's say the prayer that our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, taught us how to say, and make us worthy, O Master, to dare with confidence and without condemnation, to call upon thee, the heavenly God, as upon a father, and to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses. Forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. We're going to look, just to give you a little bit of a, of a say, uh, an overview of what we're going to be doing over the, next, um, over the next two weeks. We're going to look first at the Jubilee year and its primary instruction in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus. So, if you don't have a Bible, does anyone not have a Bible? Don't be embarrassed, I won't come after you today. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some there. Put your hand up, it's okay. Because I don't want you to go through the day without a Bible in your hand because you'll fall asleep. You got those Bibles out there. We're going to look at Leviticus and the initial instruction. Here's our, here's our outline. We're going to look at Leviticus and the initial instruction for the Jubilee year. Okay, and we're going to do that right away tonight. Uh, then we're going to look at Leviticus in the context of, you tell me, no, Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Have I been with you this long, my friends? We have to look at, at the Jubilee and the instruction Leviticus in its context in the creation story. Okay? And then from that, we're going to see the Jubilee year as it plays out in salvation history. It is, I'll give you a little insight, the straw which, which breaks the camel's back at the time of the Babylonian exile. Okay. Extremely critically important for the history of salvation. Okay. Then we're going to look at the Jubilee year in terms of the life of Christ and His work. And then finally, uh, we're going to look at our identity as Christians as called to celebrate the Jubilee year. Okay. Those are the five things we'll be looking at over the next two weeks. The Jubilee is called by the fathers of the church a great mystery. It is also called a restoration to paradise. It is called an anticipation of eternal life. Okay, I'll repeat that. The, it is called the great mystery, the restoration to paradise, and anticipation of eternal life. Is the Jubilee year important? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. A great mystery, a restoration to paradise, and anticipation of eternal life. Origen says this, Who is there who has grasped the mind of Christ 
so well that he knows the meaning of the seventh year of freedom of the Hebrew slaves and the remission of debts and the intermission of the cultivation of the Holy Land. Over and above the feast of every seventh year is the feast called Jubilee. No one can ever come near divining its precise meaning or the true import of the prescriptions enjoined by it, except him who knows the Father's will and his dis disposition for every age according to his incomprehensible judgments and unsearchable ways. How's that? All right, in other words, uh, we might as well just close up shop right now. <laughs> who is there who can grasp the mind of Christ, especially in regards to the Jubilee year? I read this, uh, this um, instruction from Origen both as a warning as, and as an invitation. It is a warning to those who would think, well, yeah, I know about that stuff, but it is an invitation to those who would like to dive more deeply into its spiritual content. And as I said at the beginning, we have a whole year in front of us, a year starting in, on December 8th for the Roman Catholics that are here and for the Melkites in 2016. I'll share with you a couple opening paragraphs from St. Ephraim's Hymns on Paradise, which are really some of my favorite words that come down to us from the Church Fathers. And in light of uh, the, the use of this idea of jubilee as a restoration to paradise, Jubilee as a restoration to paradise. St. Ephraim says this, I took my stand halfway between awe and love. A yearning for paradise invited me to explore it, but awe at its majesty restrained me from my search. With wisdom, however, I reconciled the two. I revered what lay hidden and meditated on what was revealed. The aim of my search was to find profit the aim of my silence was to find comfort. Joyfully did I embark on the tale of paradise, a tale that is short to read but rich to explore. My tongue read the story's outward narrative, while my intellect took wing and soared upward in awe as it perceived the splendor of paradise. Not indeed as it really is, but insofar as humanity is granted to comprehend it. With the eyes of my mind, I gazed upon paradise. The summit of every mountain is lower than its summits. Okay, I read that to you because it's in that sense of invitation huh, and yearning and desire. And if we have a desire to celebrate that jubilee year that is before us, the fathers give us that promise that paradise will truly, can truly be restored in our midst. You have to um, give me a moment because I wrote my notes tonight and my dad is a doctor. <laughs> so reading my own writing is not the easiest thing. We're going to see the Jubilee, as I said, in the context of salvation history, particularly from the vantage point of mercy, of love, of seeing the heart of God and his story and relationship with us. 
And that will be our, our, our particular vantage point. There is a reason why Pope Francis has called for a jubilee of mercy instead of a jubilee of something else. And this has everything to do with us as Melkites celebrating our coming jubilee. In fact, we, uh, in, our, in our church, had decided a year and a half ago, uh, two years ago, to celebrate this jubilee year, the 50th anniversary. Um, and it wasn't until a few months ago that I found out that Pope Francis was also declaring an, an extraordinary jubilee. It's extraordinary because a jubilee happens every 50th year. Every 50th year. That's why there was a jubilee in the year, in the year 2000, okay, on the 50th year. Uh, but now an extraordinary jubilee. But that jubilee of mercy is critically important to understand the identity and the nature of what a jubilee year is. And for those of the Melkite tradition, uh, it has everything to do with who we are uh, and what we are about to celebrate, as we will see in the scriptures. I ask you to turn to Leviticus chapter 25 then. Leviticus chapter 25. And we will take a fairly extensive look at the uh, instruction given to us in the book of Leviticus on the Jubilee year. Are you with me? Leviticus chapter 25. The Lord said to Moses, I've got to tell you how nice it is to be with people that can open their Bibles because I was traveling recently and, oh, it was interesting. Chapter 25. The Lord said to Moses on Mount Sinai, Say to the people of Israel, When you come into the land which I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyards and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. What grows of itself in your harvest you shall not reap. And the grapes of your undressed vine you shall not gather. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female servants and for your hired servants and for the sojourner who lives with you, for your cattle also and for the beasts, and for, and that, uh, beasts that are in your land and its yield shall be for food. So you notice the first thing about the Sabbath is it is a, a time of rest for the Holy Land. Okay? And its fruit, its produce, is to be eaten by certain people. By certain people. Okay? You see that in verse 6. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself, and for your male and female slaves, and for your hired servants, and for your sojourner who lives with you, as we're going to find out. The Jubilee year is specifically, particularly about those who are oppressed and the poor. Okay? And you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall be to you 49 years. Then, after the 49th year, then you shall send abroad the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall send abroad the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall hallow the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his family. 
a jubilee of that 50th year, will that 50th year be to you? In it you shall neither sow nor reap nor uh, what grows itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee, it shall be holy to you. You shall eat what it yields out of the field. In other words, you shall, don't go in out cultivating on the jubilee year. It's a year of rest. Okay, so they, will they eat from what's in the field? Absolutely. Will they pluck from the vine? Absolutely. But they will not go out there and work it and cultivate it. They will rely totally upon the mercy of God. They will rely totally upon His gift. And here's the key in verse 13. In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And, it's, and if you sell to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. According to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor. And so on. He goes on. Okay, in verse 18. Therefore, you shall do my statutes and keep my ordinance and perform them. So you will dwell in the land securely. This is an important point about the Jubilee. If Israel of old, and obviously as we're reading this, we're also going to start to apply this to us. If we are going to dwell in the land securely, if we're going to receive God's blessing, he says, you better follow this instruction specifically. Okay? Look at verse 39. Verse 39. And if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired servant. In a sojourner, he shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own country and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought forth from the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him with harshness, but shall fear your God." Okay, there's, there's a critically important thing about the Jubilee year in context now to the Exodus, right? They are my servants, says the Lord. Do not enslave your brother. And if your brother becomes poor beside you, then on the year of Jubilee, you shall release him from servitude. Huh? If he becomes indebted to you, very important. If he becomes indebted to you, on that year, you will release him from his debt. Look at verse 47. Verse 47. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's family, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or his near kinsman belonging to his family may redeem him, or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. He shall reckon with him who bought him from the year when he sold himself to him until the year of Jubilee. And the price of his release shall be according to the number of years. The time he was with his owner shall be rated as the time of a hired servant. If there are still many years according to them, he shall refund out of the price paid for him the price for his redemption. If there remain but few years until the year of Jubilee, he shall make a reckoning with him according to the years of service due from him, he shall refund the money for his redemption. As a servant hired year by year shall he be with him. 
He shall not rule, rule with harshness over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed by these means, then he shall be released in the year of Jubilee, he and his children with him. For to me the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants, whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Okay, there it is. That is the fundamental, the, the, the heart of the instruction on the Jubilee year. What's, what's going on or what's taking place? That every, every seventh year is to be a year of rest, but on the 50th year, then everything is to be returned to its proper order. Huh? If I have sold off land from the, because I was poor, then I will gain that land. All land will return to its proper allotment to the families every 50th year. And if you have become indebted and become a servant, God willing, not a slave, but if you become a servant and indebted to a brother or to someone else in Israel, that debt will be totally forgiven. I still remember back in the, in the, in the, in the uh, Jubilee year of 2000, I heard many stories of people that had uh, property or, or uh, orders that had property indebted to a diocese. The diocese would completely forgive the debt. Give them the land. Okay? They took it very seriously. Very seriously. Let's take a look also at Deuteronomy chapter 15. It says basically the same thing, but I want to show you that it's there and then also you need it in your notes and to be able to... It says it slightly differently and maybe a little clear, more clearly. You remember Deuteronomy is written during the time of the Israel is camped in the plains of Moab, right? After the, the, uh, the, uh, they went and took the Moabite women, right? And Deuteronomy is written as a second law to explain to the children again, here, if you didn't get it the first time, now you'll get it the second time, right? And so Deuteronomy oftentimes is a little clearer about the laws. Look at verse chapter 15. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a, foreigner you may, of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there shall be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you for an inheritance to possess. If only you obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments which I command you this day. For the Lord your God will bless you as He promised you. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If there is among you a poor man, one of your brethren, in any of your towns within your land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take heed lest there be a base thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye be hostile to your brother and you give him nothing. So what's he saying? Because right, it's the sixth year, the next year he's going to have to give everything back. Then I'm not going to loan him everything. I'm not going to loan him anything because I'm not, I, right, the, the return would not be enough. So he says, don't, don't do that. 
Verse 10, you shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your land and in all that you undertake for the poor will never cease out of the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in the land. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And so on. Okay? Does that make sense? This is the, this is the, the, the critically important thing about the Jubilee year is the idea of freedom from slavery. Freedom from servitude. St. Basil the Great explains, seven weeks of years in ancient times produced the celebrated Jubilee in which the earth kept the Sabbath. Debts were canceled. Slaves were set free. And as it were, a new life was established again. Paradise is restored. The old one in a certain way attaining its fulfillment in the number seven. The key then to understanding Leviticus and the Jubilee is the restoration to our original state. Restoration to the way God had planned it to be. Tim Gray, Dr. Gray says, For, for Israel, the seventh day of, day of the week, the Sabbath, was the sign of the covenant God made with her at the time of her exodus from Egypt. In addition, every seventh year was a Sabbath year, from which we get the, year, the term sabbatical. A year-long sign of the covenant. After a series of seven Sabbath years, for a total of 49 years, the next year, the 50th, was to be a year-long festival of joy, jubilation, and celebration. The 50th year, the 50th year was the year of jubilee. The jubilee year was the Sabbath of Sabbaths of Sabbaths. The covenant sign par excellence. End quote. In order to understand then the Jubilee within its proper context, we must recall that the instruction of this year of jubilation was given during the time of the Exodus when God released Israel from bondage to slavery. The year of Jubilee was therefore meant to recall to the Jewish people the mercy of God in releasing them from bondage in Egypt. But it must be understood in light of the events of the story of Adam and Eve and the fall from paradise. N.T. Wright says that the Exodus had long been associated with the act of creation itself. Ultimately, then, the Jubilee year, the proclamation of the Jubilee year, should not be understood simply in the light of the story of Exodus alone, but in the light of the Sabbath day of paradise. The Exodus itself must be seen fundamentally as an act of recreation. As David Chilton says, God's saving of His people through the Exodus was a reenactment of the history of creation. 
In saving Israel, God was constituting them a new creation. Do you see then, the exodus and what's going on during that time, the instruction in Leviticus and Deuteronomy is simply about taking the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and re, or giving them once again their proper identity as children of God. To understand that then, we need to see the instruction of Leviticus and the release of the slaves and the return to the land in the context of the great Sabbath day of the book of Genesis, our original calling in the Garden of Eden. Okay, so let's turn then back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. I've shared this quotation with you before, but I think it's worth sharing again from St. Athanasius. The first fact that you must grasp is this. The renewal of creation has been accomplished by the self-same Word who made it in the beginning. Thus, there is no inconsistency between creation and salvation. For the one Father has employed the same agent for both works, fashioning the salvation of the world through the same Word who made it at the first. And here's where that risk or that, that I think that danger comes in. When we dislocate the work of Christ from the Old Testament, number one, and we dislocate what we're doing today from salvation history. If we want to understand what we're doing as Christians and what the church calls us to do, we always have to refer to the greater story of God's work among His people and ultimately back to the story of creation where we see the way God had made it in the beginning for us to live. And if we, di- if we don't do that, if we don't constantly keep the story of Genesis as our context for the work of Christ and our context for us today as Christians, then we risk dislocating salvation from the problem. If we forget about the problem and we forget about God's original plan, then Jesus becomes, I don't know, Johnny come lately, right? The, the God's band-aid God's band-aid when the devil outdid him. Not at all. Jesus' work and our life as Christians is always to be understood in the context of Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And if we do that then, I believe we will be safe from the problem of dropping the title Jubilee Year from the Year of Mercy. We need to become then well-grounded. And being well-grounded, we'll be able to then move forward to see why God calls Israel on that Sabbath of Sabbaths of Sabbaths to do this exact thing and why the church calls us today to live out our Jubilee calling. And so, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in Genesis 1 and 2, but... I do want to remind you, especially some new people that are here with us, a couple of themes that are critically important. And the first one is God's identity in Genesis chapter 1. We know that He is Creator in Genesis chapter 1, but we know something more about Him. Because in Genesis chapter 1, repeated over and over again, is that beautiful phrase, almost like a litany sung in the church, and God saw that it was good. 
I've spoken with you about this before. To see something as good, huh? Anne's got a glass of wine here. Looks good, right? She saw it as good and she went and got it. And she's bringing it to herself. To see something as good is to see it as desirable. And desire is the most fundamental movement of the will. And when the will is oriented at the most important things, we call that desire love. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. God saw that it was desirable. Love is the, is the desire to share one's life with the beloved. No greater love hath any man than to give his life for his friend. Love, love is the gift of the lover to the beloved of the most important things. And what is the most important thing but our life? Love seeks to share the life of the lover with the beloved. And God saw that it was good and God saw that it was good. Revealed to us in Genesis chapter 1 is the great mystery of God's love for His creation and His desire to divinize His creation. If you want to know why in our church we take water and wine and oil, the common things of this world, and we sanctify them, we divinize them, we fill them up with God's life, it's not because the church invented that in the 3rd or 4th century or 5th century. It's because it's God's original plan for His creation. And God saw His creation. He saw the water and the oil. He saw the bread and the wine. He saw the grapes. And He saw them as good. And most importantly, the culmination of His creation made in His image and likeness. And He saw us as very good, as lovable. He desired to share His life with us. And this is why Jesus could say that the two greatest commandments are love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. We are made in the image and likeness of God who is love. And therefore, we are called in our proper identity as Christians, our primary identity is people made in the image and likeness of God to do one thing, and that is to love. The whole law, Jesus says, is based upon this. And I will tell you that the Jubilee here is at the center and the heart of that law. The whole law of how man is supposed to act is based upon these two things. Love God and love your neighbor, for you are made in His image and likeness. God poured out His life into creation for the sake of man. All was created for man, but man was created in turn to love and to serve God and to offer all of creation back to Him. To do what God does. To be who God is. I'll share with you, I've got about three or four quotation from, quotations from Cardinal Ratzinger's Spirit of the Liturgy, which uh, is really quite excellent. We've posted uh, on the website, um, um, Monica, it's on the event page, am I right? Uh, chapters 1 and 2 of this book, I believe it's chapters 1 and 2, I highly recommend to you over the next week to go and read it. 
It's very, very well done and really hits at the center of the things we're going to be talking about over the next two weeks. He says, thus, we can see what the foundation of existence must be. It is the steadfast adherence to the law of God, which orders human affairs rightly. And how does it order human affairs rightly? That is, by organizing them as realities which come from God and are meant to return to God. The whole of the law of the Old Testament is summed up in this beautiful action by which we receive the gift of God and knowing that we receive all things and most fundamentally our life from Him, we are called to do one thing and that is to say thank you. To receive these as gifts and to use them as an offering back to Him. We can see what the, the, what the foundation of existence must be. It is the steadfast adherence to the law of God, which orders human affairs rightly. And again, we put this in the context of the Jubilee year when we're talking about the law of God. The steadfast adherence to the law of God or the Jubilee year, which orders human rights or affairs rightly. And think about slavery and releasing from slavery. That is, by organizing them, not as things you have, but as realities which come from God, as a gift, and therefore are to be offered back to Him. In this, Adam and Eve and all of creation would become partakers of God's life. All of creation was meant to be filled up with God's life. We would be united to God in a common life which we would share. Notice, notice, I've, I've shared this with some of you before, but I believe it, it bears repeating. Notice the commands which, which are given to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, to till and keep the garden, and to have dominion. In each one of these things, the gift which God has planted in creation is given to us to cultivate, to grow, to make prosper, to make fruitful and multiply. In other words, to continue to give the life which God has first given us and to offer that whole life back to Him. In this way, we can begin to see properly Adam and Eve's dominion over creation, His re proper relationship with creation, and ultimately His priesthood. Ultimately, his priesthood. There's one more ingredient that I think is critically important uh, before we can set behind us um, the story of Genesis. And that is to see the whole of creation, the whole of the story of creation, as not ending with Adam and Eve, but brought to its perfection on the seventh day, the great Sabbath day of creation. Again, we understand these things in the context now of the Jubilee year. What do we know about the seventh day? On that day, God rested. And when God rested, He blessed creation. And I've said this before, but when a thing is blessed, it is filled up with God's life. It is made holy. It is sanctified. It is filled up with God's life. The seventh day does... Ultimately, what all of creation is for. 
the seventh day does, or God does on the seventh day, what he made creation for, namely to become a partaker in his divine life. He blessed creation and poured his life out into it. This is so critically important. The seventh day was meant to be the day in which Adam and Eve and all of creation entered into a covenant with God. In a covenant, two parties become one. Husband and wife become one flesh. On that seventh day, when God blessed creation, He gave the most important thing He could give, namely His eternal life to the created order. He filled it up. He blessed it. He filled it up with His own life. And when He did that, we could say about the things of creation what we could say about God because they shared that most fundamental thing together, namely a common life. God's life was found among men. The seventh day is marked by the attribute of love. Love seeks to share its life with the beloved. The seventh day was for love. Again, Cardinal Ratzinger says, creation moves toward the Sabbath to the day on which man and the whole created order participate in God's rest, in His freedom. Creation exists to be a place for the covenant that God wants to make with man. The goal of creation is the covenant, which is the love story of God and man. I'm going to read that together for you again because it is so important to get this as we look toward the Jubilee year and the work of Jesus Christ. Creation moves toward the Sabbath to the day on which man and the whole created order participate in God's rest, in His freedom. In His freedom. Creation exists to be a place for the covenant that God wants to make with man. The goal of creation is the covenant, which is the love story of God and man. Knowing what love is, that sharing of the life with the beloved, you can see how love is the center, it is the nature, it is the reality of the covenant itself. He mentions their freedom. And I stressed that because, well, primarily because we're speaking about the Jubilee year regarding freedom for those that are oppressed. Freedom for those that are in debt. Freedom for those that are in slavery. And as we move toward next week and our discussion about our own relationship with the Jubilee year, we're not simply talking about physical slavery. Jesus has come to free us not just from Egypt. He has come to free us from our sins. Love is the center of the covenant. And love, and love requires as a foundation or as the atmosphere, if you will, of paradise, freedom. Where there is no freedom, there is no love. Love cannot be coerced. Freedom and love must go together. 
freedom, as I said, is the atmosphere of paradise in which authentic love can take place. Freedom is the atmosphere of the covenant. Without freedom, there cannot be a shared life. Slavery is an insult thrown into the face of God. Slavery is an insult thrown into the face of God. And I want to stop here for a minute because I believe that today we struggle with our, a proper notion of authentic freedom. There is, of course, authentic freedom, but there is an abuse of freedom. There is an abuse of freedom, and we need to make a distinction between these two. Freedom is the freedom and ability to do good, not to do evil. We are not free to sin. We have that ability as a result of our freedom. But God does not give us the freedom to do evil. That is an abuse of freedom. Freedom is not license, which is exactly what our modern society would like it to be. Freedom does not equal independence. Freedom does not equal independence. As Cardinal Ratzinger says, freedom is a gift of God and is the foundation and atmosphere of the covenant. Freedom is the necessary context of true love. I'll continue that quotation I, I read earlier. Ah, anarchy is the parody of freedom. There you go. You should come and see my handwriting this morning. I am the, I am the uh, yes, I'm a graduate from Catholic school education. Okay. F creation moves toward the Sabbath, to the day on which man and the whole created order participate in God's rest in his freedom. Creation exists to be a place for the covenant that God wants to make with man. The goal of the creation is the covenant, the love story of God and man. He continues, the covenant is a relationship, God's gift of himself to man, but also man's response to God. And man's response to God who is good to him is love. And loving God means worshiping him. Here begins the spiritual creation. The creation of the covenant. Creation looks toward the covenant, but the covenant completes creation and does not simply exist alongside of it. So I want to challenge you. How does creation move toward communion with God? This is what he says. Creation moves toward the covenant. Creation moves toward communion with God. God has planted the seed and now creation is supposed to develop, be perfected, and come into communion with God. <clears throat> How is that to happen? How is that to happen? Creation moves toward the Sabbath. How does that happen? How does creation, the trees, the things of this world, you and I, how do we come into that covenant relationship with God? By giving back to God the gifts He gives ah, us. Ah, by giving back to God the gifts He gives us. Dibby, you are exactly right. 
here is the fundamental identity of Adam and Eve as priests of paradise. As priests of paradise. Remember, Adam and Eve were made in the image and likeness of God. Adam and Eve's dominion and their priesthood is found here. Being in the image and likeness of God who blesses. Blessing is the bestowing of God's life upon the created order. Adam and Eve were meant to image God not only by their reason and by their will, but by blessing the things around them and the people around them. By sharing the life they had received with those whom they encountered. Yes, with bread and wine and oil, but fundamentally with each other. Marriage, the gift of marriage, where the two become one flesh, is the revelation the revelation on earth, the enfleshment, the incarnation, if you will, of the beautiful love of God which He has for His people. As God offered Himself and creation to us, we are to respond to that by offering ourselves and those things we have received back to Him. Can you see how beautiful and profound this gift is? He truly wants us to be like Him. He doesn't want us to be His slaves. He wants us to be His sons. All of creation is under the dominion of God. But that dominion is revealed as love. God exercises His dominion over creation as King of creation by giving His life and filling up creation with His life. Adam and Eve in His image and likeness who have been given dominion in the shoes of the King, to be kings in the King, are to do no less than what God has already done. And this means loving, pouring out our life to those whom we serve and ultimately pouring out our life to God. But we know what happened. Adam and Eve rejected the dominion of God. They rejected their dependency upon God as their source of life. And they sought a false freedom. Rather than seeking freedom under the dominion of the only one who can give true freedom, they sought so-called independence. I would venture to say there is no such thing. So-called independence is a delusion of the devil. Either we serve God or we serve the devil. There is no middle road. Notice that if we are dependent upon God for our life, if we are dependent upon God for eternal life, then when we are dislocated from Him, when creation which depends upon Adam and Eve to order it properly is dislocated from Him, then immediately creation becomes not a place of life, but a place of death. This is so important when we're talking about our relationship with other people. 
If our relationships with other people are not rooted in our relationship with God, then our relationship with other people will ultimately bear death rather than life. God is the only one who can bestow life. As the great father Alexander Schmemann says, when Adam and Eve turned their back on God, life gained a new attribute called mortality. We began to identify this created order by one attribute, death. Mortal life, death life. As he says, at that moment, the whole created order became a cosmic cemetery. The devil gained dominion over Adam and Eve. And with that, all things which God had placed at their hands. And this is exactly what the devil wants to do. To cut us off from our communion with God. To cut us off from our submission and our dependency upon God. So that we can come under His dominion. Instead of friendship, slavery. Instead of freedom, coercion. Instead of love, death. As Father James Groening says, by an abuse of freedom, Adam plunged the entire human race into the most shameful captivity. I will repeat that in terms of the Jubilee year and what God is calling Israel of old to do in reclaiming their proper identity as sons and daughters of God. By an abuse of freedom, by an abuse of freedom, Adam plunged the entire human race into the most shameful captivity, into the most shameful slavery. How important it is then that we recognize God's gifts. How important it is that our relationship with others is rooted first in our relationship with God. How important it is that our relationships, that in our relationships, authentic freedom is cultivated. Not license to do wrong, but freedom to do right. Not license, but love. This is the context of the Jubilee year. This is the context in which God calls His people to release and to grant freedom to those who are oppressed, to those who are in slavery. Because that is not the work of the children of God. That is the work of the devil. St. Ephraim says that the entire aim of God, henceforth, from the moment of the fall, has been to effect the means for Adam and all of humanity to return to paradise. The whole of the law, all of the work of Jesus Christ, is to do that one thing. To give us back our proper identity. To call us back to the Garden of Eden. Of Eden. But, and maybe we can kind of draw it to a close here. If freedom is the necessary atmosphere for authentic love before the fall, if freedom is the necessary atmosphere of authentic love before the fall, then with the fall, 
Freedom gains a new aspect. Freedom requires something more. And that is forgiveness and mercy. In Pope Francis's announcement of the Jubilee year, he says, as we can see in sacred Scripture, mercy is a key word that indicates God's action toward us. He does not limit Himself merely to affirming His love. Again, when I'm saying these words, make sure these things are coming back to you from the idea of covenant and shared life. He does not limit Himself merely to affirming His love, but makes it visible and tangible. Love, after all, can never be just an abstraction. By its very nature, it indicates something concrete. Intentions, attitudes, and behaviors that are shown in daily living. The mercy of God is His loving concern for each of us. The mercy of God is His loving concern for each of us. The mercy of God and love are two aspects of the same reality. He feels responsible. That is, He desires our well-being. He wants to see us happy, full of joy and peaceful. This is the path which the merciful love of Christians must also travel. As the Father loves, so do His children. Just as He is merciful, so we are called to be merciful to each other. It is in this context of being in the image and likeness of God who loves. In a post-fallen state in which love gains, if you will, that aspect of mercy. In which that aspect of forgiveness becomes the necessary atmosphere for authentic freedom, which is the necessary atmosphere for authentic love, which is the necessary atmosphere for salvation, for having eternal life within us. Mercy, forgiveness, becomes the foundation for true freedom and true communion with God. Without forgiveness, without mercy, man is left in his slavery. And we are made in his image and after his likeness. If in the Exodus God calls us back to Him as His sons, if in the Exodus God, as St. Basil says, calls us back to creation, to our original identity, then in the Exodus, in the Jubilee year, God calls us to restore in our actions what God has done in the beginning of the world, namely to love. And again, love requires the atmosphere of freedom. And freedom requires, in a post-fallen world, the atmosphere of forgiveness and mercy. Next week, we will look at, we will turn back to Leviticus, but we will look specifically at uh, the Babylonian exile. As I said to you, the Jubilee year plays a critical role in the fall of, of Jerusalem to the Babylonians. And Jesus' ministry, His work, always is seen in the context of that problem. Because that problem was never resolved. 
when Jesus steps into this world and travels to Nazareth and enters the synagogue to unroll the scroll of Isaiah, he fulfills not only what Israel failed to do at the Babylonian exile, but he fulfills what Adam and Eve had failed to do in the beginning. Thank you very much. The year of the Sabbath, every seventh year, yeah. they did not work. Right. On the 50th year was the Jubilee year right. where they celebrated. Right. Did, does that mean they had two non-working years it, in a row? Yeah, it appears so. And the Jubilee year is specifically for the rejoicing. Uh, the, 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 the term Jubilee, it's debated the, the real meaning of it, um, but it, it appears to be the sound of the trumpet. Remember, they, they go around, they blow the trumpet and announce the Jubilee year, okay? So it's the, it's the year of rejoicing in freedom, which makes total sense, right? It's this return to paradise where everything is made right. Um, so, that, yes, apparently so. Um, but... You know, I, I didn't consult, you just reminded me to consult a book that I have on this topic. So if you email me, remind me to consult that book, I'll do it. Okay? All right. You spoke of Adam and Eve being priests, and again in the Christian era, we're called to be a nation of priests. I'm confused by that. How am I to be a priest? Okay. What does it mean to be a priest? To be an elder, right? Presbyteroids is to be an elder, to be one who uh, to, gives on to those around you. So the, the gift of Adam and Eve's priesthood and the gift of your priesthood through baptism, and this is something, I, I'm glad you brought it up because it's, it's, I always say this, well, you're, people, people say, when are you going to be ordained? That's what they ask me if I'm ever going to, because my brother got ordained a priest, so now I get, that's the question I get all the time. Well, what about you? What are you gonna be? I said, I am ordained. And they, and they said, well, I said, no, I'm a deacon. I said, not only that, you're ordained. And that's, this is a fundamental problem, that we don't see, we don't understand our baptism as being effective, ultimately. I think ultimately today we're, we're a bunch of Protestants who really don't. I'm sorry if the Protestants are in the room watching tonight. I love you. But... <laughs> but but I, I really think we have a, a misunderstanding, or say a weak understanding, a very weak understanding of what baptism is and does. Okay? Uh, when you are baptized, you are baptized into Christ. Thank you. Into Christ. And Jesus is the great high priest who offers his life to God and his life to his neighbor. Right? He is the one who loves God and loves his neighbor. This is our calling as being baptized members of the church. The gift of priesthood, the gift of, uh, of kingship, uh, both of them are, are rooted. The gift of being a prophet, uh, that's a great one too, because we don't think about that. Oh, well, I'm a prophet? You're a prophet of God. Now, that doesn't mean you're a fortune teller. Prophets aren't fortune tellers. Prophets are ones who speak the truth. Okay? Uh, I'll come back to the priesthood thing in a second. Um, the prophet one is maybe a little bit easier and more helpful. When you are baptized into Christ, you are given the gift of being in Christ. The church itself 
is Christ on earth, which is why we believe that the church is infallible. And you say, what? The church is infallible? He says, you, you, and you, and you, and you, as members of the church, are infallible. As a corporate entity, the church is infallible because it is in Christ. And I would challenge you to go back and I want you to read your catechism, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, on infallibility. Okay? The Catechism of the Catholic Church starts its section on infallibility where? What's the first paragraph going to be about? Who's infallible in the church? It doesn't start there. Thank you. Jesus is the center of the church. Jesus is infallible. Why is Jesus infallible? Because he's God. All right? We are baptized into God, therefore the church is infallible. Okay? Your faith is an infallible faith. So you go back and read that section. You are a prophet of God. You are also a king of God, which means you can order creation properly. You are also a priest of God, which means you can give the gift of life that you have received. This is the problem we have today. Christians go around thinking, well, I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm just me. I'm, I'm nothing. You have been elevated. You are a participant in the divine nature. You have a new nature. Which means you can do things which other people can't do. Okay? Now, there's also the gift of ministerial priesthood in the church by which certain members do certain things. Absolutely, certainly. But that gift of priesthood is first true about Jesus. Because he's God. Then it's true about the church and you who are baptized into the church, into Christ. Right? And then it's specifically lived out in, in particular kind of ways by certain members who are hands or feet or eyes or ears, depending on the gift you've received. Okay? So always go back to the original. Nothing in Christianity is new. It is the restoration of God's original plan. God will not be outdone. Um, Deacon Sabatini, you mentioned the seventh year is the Sabbath year. Is there anything the church has done historically, traditionally, to recognize that? That's a good question. I don't know that. I don't know the answer to that. I don't. I don't think so. Except for uh, that. He, that I was mentioning earlier, um, uh, Dr. Gray's point about the sabbatical year um, being right. The sab sabbatical year is that year in which teachers don't have to teach for which I'm starting to wonder whether that's actually going to be true for me. When you were talking about Adam and Eve and um, by his abuse of freedom, plunging the whole entire world into slavery, I couldn't help think about the weight on his shoulders. I mean, how could anybody possibly bear that weight? And then you mentioned, then comes along God's mercy and forgiveness. Yeah. So the reason I asked you to ask that question was because that's the reason why this, uh, the picture is used. What does Jesus do? He finds the lost sheep. He finds us in Adam and Eve, right? Weighed down by the weight of our sins. And he picks us up, puts us on our shoulders, and walks us home. He literally puts us on. Right? He takes our humanity and rejoins it to his divinity. He does in himself what Adam and Eve were supposed to not do on their own, but with God. Right? That Jesus is the new Adam like in a real kind of way. Right? I mean, you've got 
this gift of God's life and the, and the gift of humanity, and they're joined together as one. He is the new covenant. A covenant is a joining of two parties as one. He's made one. And the new covenant can never be broken this time. Why? Because it's not, it's not the human who is now receiving the gift of divine life. It's God who is now reaching down and bringing humanity to Himself. And that can never be broken. It's no longer on Adam's shoulders or choice, if you will. It is, but it, I mean... Thank you. Thank you, Mana. Come on. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.